you need power to move. If we never fight, it's a battle we'll always lose. Welcome to the Groundswell Podcast, where we share the stories that are relevant and significant to the communities we serve. Through these stories, we are able to take a deeper look at what drives the work that Groundswell and our partners do and learn more about our projects and initiatives around the country. In this episode, I visited Empowerment Temple, the site for one of our resilience hubs in Baltimore. I got a chance to sit down with Pastor Turner, Brother Mike Simmons, and Anthony Robinson as they share their knowledge, legacy, and experience within the environmental justice movement and what resiliency means to them as well as the greater community. If we never fight, it's a battle we'll always Today we are honored to be speaking with our guest, Pastor Turner, who is the current pastor at Empowerment Temple in Baltimore, Maryland, where we are today. Pastor Turner is also the former pastor of the historic Vernon AME Church in Tulsa, which was the only church to survive the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Pastor Turner, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So before coming to Empowerment Temple, as I mentioned, you were the pastor at the historic Vernon AME Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. How does the civil rights relevance of Tulsa, Oklahoma influence your social justice advocacy? Um, The fact that in the turn of the century, 1921, um, by 1921, you had a place of 10,000 or so African-Americans, a generation out of slavery, that were able to, in the absence of any affirmative action, in the absence of any philanthropic grant initiative, in the absence of any individual donor, you have black people who, a generation out of slavery, created their own Wall Street. And as wonderful as Tulsa was, Tulsa was not unique, right? You have black Wall Streets, literally every place black people went. And live because we had an isolated economy due to Jim Crow. And what did what did the white people do in response to black economic uplift? Right, really epitomizing the whole pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Your, the, the whole conservative, you know, uh, laissez-faire, hands-off, free market economy. Just letting people do what they are allowed to do and make as much they're allowed to make. When black people were making what they were allowed to make on their own, our folks got jealous mm-hmm. and bought it to the ground. And so it shows me, and, and this was, we had this economic development before we had civil rights. You know, mm-hmm. we were, we, we had our own banks and insurance companies and airplanes before we had the right to vote, Right. you know, but it was destroyed yeah. by folks who were elected and allowed and nobody was ever brought to to trial. So it, it shows me that economic development has to go hand in hand with civil rights. Because you can have economic development in the black community, but with no civil rights, at any given time, white folks can come and do what they did because you're not seen as an equal citizen. So you, you, you need civil rights with economic development and economic development with, with civil rights. Because without the one, the other is always insufficient. Without Without economic development, civil rights is incomplete. Cause I'm just, I have the right to vote. I have the right to participate in society civilly, 
but not economic. Like, I can't make it's it. No money. ownership. No ownership, yeah. right? But with with all the economic development and no civil rights, then I have the right to make money, but no guarantee of due process. Absolutely. If somebody wants to come and destroy, yeah, take it away. Wow, that's that's powerful. So you know, given the history of Black Wall Street and the the kind of connection between um, economic development and the civil rights movement. How does this connect to your um, vision for Empowerment Temple today? Oh, uh, to really uh, build on the legacy that they already have established um, from the founder, Jamal Harrison Bryant, um, from the TEC that was already set up and, and matching my passion for economic repair for our community, for black people primarily um, due to um, 400 years of oppression and slavery and racism and the reign of white supremacy. I see it being a perfect marriage of my, my goals, my vision, my history um, with the already stated goals of Empowerment Temple to now actualize this vision, to take it from just a, a vision to a mission that's manifest for the community of Baltimore and the greater area to take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. We are excited to be here with Brother Mike Simmons, who is a leader at the Empowerment Temple, as well as a leader in the Economic Empowerment Coalition. Brother Mike continues to play a vital role in the development and implementation of the Resilience Hubs here in Baltimore. Thank you for being here, Brother Mike. In your opinion, what is the biggest challenge facing underserved communities right now? The biggest challenge is economics and the economic part is what is uh, driving the crime, et cetera, the, the housing issues, et cetera. Economics is the, is the primary thing. And what made you want to get involved in the Baltimore Resiliency Hub program? Uh, at the time, I was the trustee in charge of the building uh, maintenance of the Empowerment Temple. And uh, this opportunity was brought to our attention through Groundswell and Groundswell uh, presented a real opportunity to advance some things that were that I knew and based upon my background as a code enforcement official in Baltimore City, I realized that we didn't have much green empowerment in the city. So the solar op opportunity came to us, give some additional ed ed education towards what we consider the green world or green environment. Now we're going to shift to Mr. Anthony Robinson, who is the chairman of the Economic Empowerment Coalition, which empowers and equips the congregation with business and entrepreneurship development. Robinson is a key mentor to Brett Jones and a hero for Black business development. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Robinson. Thank you for having me. So what inspires and drives your advocacy work? Oh, Lord, that's a, that's a history lesson. <laughs> when I was um, when I was in college, I met a man by the name of Perrin Mitchell, who was the first black congressman from Maryland. And I was a student at Morgan, and he he coined the term the second phase of the civil rights movement was economic development. And I was a political science student, so I got involved with his campaign and got the opportunity to hear his thinking about an economic development agenda for black folk. And so that's, that became my life's work. So I spent 40 years heading up an organization that he started called the Minority Business Enterprise Legal Defense and Education Fund. So that's the context in which Pastor Jamal Bryant opened up Empowerment Temple 
and he wanted to have as a third leg of his ministry an economic development agenda. So he asked me to head that up. That's amazing. Um, and it, it's great that you mentioned what Karen Mitchell said about the second phase of the civil rights movement being economic development. That was actually one of my questions. Do you still find that to be the case today and why? More so today than even when I got involved in the uh, 60s, 70s. Because I see much of what plagues our community rooted in economic issues. I mean, economic and moral issues, let me put it that way. And so I think that to lift our folk up economically um, would raise a lot of boats relative to challenges that we have as a people and as a community. And I see it from a global perspective, quite frankly, that to lift our people up globally economically, and I think we have so many competitive advantages in the international world or in an international community that um, if we could begin to have a focus on that, particularly if we get our ministers, our leadership mm-hmm. focused on that. Spiritual leadership as well as our political leadership mm-hmm. focused on that, that it will take us as a people in a different direction. That's amazing. So, you know, speaking of this vision manifested, Brother Mike, um, can you just tell us more about your role in the Resilience Hub program in Baltimore? Establishing the resiliency hub is is crucial to the, the community at large because there are so many emergencies, and that's what a, a resiliency hub does. It deals with emergencies, situations that are not planned. So, my part, having been part of the city government, etc., is to have brought that together during the years uh, gone by, which is like somewhere around the last four years. The city of Baltimore, along with the state of Maryland, have given the site known as Empowerment Temple here on Primrose Avenue the agreement to be indemnified, meaning that we can act or be a facility as if though it's City Hall. In case of emergency, such as during the pandemic, we were a place where food was distributed, Uh, people had opportunity to come here and meet, get water distributed, etc. Uh, We even had an incident here back in August of 2020 where several houses about a mile and a half from this location had a gas leak and the houses exploded. So that community was devastated. During that same time, we were the location for psychological assistance, which is, you know, to help because of stress, the emergency assistance. We were the hub for uh, Baltimore City uh, fire and emergency because they had to triage this situation up and back and forth from the community where the the, uh, devastation occurred. And we was a location where people gathered and were able to get to their family members, people that may have been missing or community at large. So that's what I've been been tasked with. And I was part of that knitting process, making sure those things go on. And of course, as we go forward, we're looking to be part of the uh, code red as well as a code blue as we move forward. Yeah, that's a, it's a challenging but you know very necessary and important role. Thank you, Brother Mike. So what obstacles have you encountered so far in um, the solar project development process and how did you overcome those obstacles? The solar project, the biggest obstacles are, obstacles are people. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, the statement is, as far as we're concerned, that when people perish, when they don't have a vision, and a lot of people don't have a vision, they frighten you. And of course, as we know, in this particular environment, you have people that don't have vision. When we talk about solar, that's changing from fossil fuels 
which pollutes the air on a day-to-day basis to some some way of generating electric uh, power, the alternative power cheaply other than using fossil fuels. So usually people are the, the biggest problem. You can have a lot of plans, ideas, but it's human, human beings that get in the way. And over the past couple of years, that's been my biggest obstacle. Mm-hmm. It's persuading people, uh, at, uh, the citizens or the church members or people at large that uh, solar is, is part of the new wave of renewable energy. That's awesome. Thank you. So, Mr. Robinson, you lead the Economic Empowerment Coalition, a nonprofit community development corporation, which has partnered with Groundswell on the Resiliency Hub project here at Empowerment Temple. What was your role um, in the development, planning, implementation process? <laughs> Quite honestly, um, was ha- having some uh, good people around me, like Mike and another brother named Milt. Um, Mayo. They were the ones who really did the work. And so that was um, to embrace the vision of TEC, to embrace that vision, to persuade some other good people to embrace that vision. And I think the thing that I'm probably most proud of are the number of people in the church that became familiar with entrepreneurship and embraced an entrepreneurial lifestyle. We've had some real successes of people who have taken their businesses from just an idea to actually having a business, a thriving, sustaining business today. So that's probably what I'm probably most proud of. We had a vision when Pastor Brian asked me to take this over, the idea was that we would become a revenue stream for the church. We've not yet achieved that. So that uh, the church is not just being sustained by what the members give every Sunday, but sustained by creating revenue streams out of entrepreneurs. I still embrace that that vision, but that was what uh, caught my uh, desire to continue to pursue the TEC agenda. Mm-hmm. And in looking to pursue that agenda, I'll also ask what obstacles were you faced with? Um, and then what did you learn from encountering those obstacles? I can give, give you a better answer than that. <laughs> people as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, <laughs> and getting others for us in critical positions to, to adopt the, the, the agenda, adopt the vision. People tend to silo everything into what, what they're about. They don't see the broader vision about how this helps the collective Mm -hmm. called the church move forward. And so that's 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 been been the biggest challenge and the biggest uh, source of frustration for me. Getting people to see more as a collective and not as an individual. That's correct. Got it. Having a community based mindset across the board, I think, would, would help with a lot. So uh, for you, Pastor Turner, what was your experience like being a pastor in Tulsa and now Baltimore? And do you see any notable similarities or differences working in both communities? Yes. Great question. Um, Tulsa was a place that had a lot of great history of black affluence. Maryland presently is... um, According to the latest statistics, 
the highest number of of blacks who make over two hundred thousand dollars a year reside in Maryland. In fact, it was Prince George's County, now it's Charles County. Mm-hmm. That's the number one and number one and number two counties in America with blacks who make over two hundred thousand dollars a year, right? Um, so Maryland is pretty much like it has its own pockets of Black Wall Street, you know. Um, Tulsa was a place where black people have been now almost 100 years. Uh, Maryland, Baltimore, I mean, some people have commuted up from South Carolina and North Carolina, but a lot of these families, I mean, it's one of the oldest states in America, right? Mm-hmm, right. You know, so they've, they've been here for generations. So you have a lot more stable and institutions as family names. Um, and what was the last half of your question? Um, just do you see any similarities and differences? Yeah. I know you're kind of touching on that. Yeah, so the similarities are that the history of wealth in Tulsa, the presence of wealth overall in the state of Maryland. Baltimore people may say it's the inner city poverty, but it still has its pockets of wealth, even in Baltimore, but definitely in the large area of Metro Baltimore. Um, and and so yeah, those are two of the two of the things that I see economic development past and economic development present in this area. What role does legacy and history play in your current focus on community resilience here in Baltimore? Legacy and I mean, legacy shows us where we've come from um, and where we've come from in Maryland and in Baltimore is excellence. Um, resilience has been the engine that's got us error to error. Um, it, it took resilience for us to to even get to this current space of America, um, surviving the Middle Passage, right? Mm-hmm. It took resilience for people such as Harriet Tubman to keep coming back to Maryland and other states um, to free people from slavery. It took resilience for Frederick Douglass from Maryland, right? And Thurgood Marshall, right? All those court cases we fought for civil rights and even and even recently in Baltimore with um, the last 50 years, they, even if you want to look at just culturally losing a football team, the Colts, right, to get another one and then to get another one. Now you have the Ravens and mm-hmm. they're winning and sometimes they, they don't win. So then they start winning again. This is a very resilient place. Yeah, a very resilient place. Um, and, and that resiliency is is the key for us continuing to maintain our legacy. So it's not just something in the past, you know, which our legacy comes from, but our resiliency can carry us not just in the present, but in into the future. Absolutely. Um, Brother Mike, I would like to ask you the same question. What role does legacy play in your work for community resilience and development? Oh God, considering I come from people that work, that's, you know, and, and get up and go nine to five and, and every day and build churches and so on. That's key in, in reference to myself. And I saw that with parents that started unions, some of the unions in, in, in Baltimore. When we talk about the American Federation of Government Employees, my father was one of the key members in one of the Baltimore chapters. That's where I get a lot of that from. I saw that in some of the uh, folks, in the, including uh, the founding pastor's uh, grandfather, Harrison, 
Harris and Bryant and all the group, the churches that did the things they did alongside of Martin Luther King. So it's very important when you see, when you have experienced that and seen that in your in your living room and at your dining room table, the men and women speaking on that. That's part of my legacy. Now that they passed on, and I see these and hear this, and I can think about it in the future. That's why I'm so committed to this, because I understand that, that I got to where I am because of other people who did what they did in their previous. And that's where the legacy piece continues going forward. Also, having uh, understood that, that I was taught, that I want for my brothers and sisters what I want for me. So I would want success, prosperity, and long life. So I want that too. You know, I have a trade, I have a degree. An interesting process that I've traveled over the years. And, and uh, you don't get there without being resilient. You don't get there without a, a struggle. But uh, you have to pass it on. Because I know even as a retired person and being able to spend the time, I'm capable of doing some things that some people can't do. They can't even think about volunteering because they don't have they they don't have the time. They didn't see anything such as that. So I'm I'm grateful for that part. So that's where I'm my commitment to this whole process is. It comes from people who were committed, come from the South, move forward, education, etc. You know. Absolutely. So. What lessons would you share with other nonprofits or other people planning solar projects? Like, if you had any advice for them, always be prayerful. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's a piece of because we come from a, a nonprofit and a church environment or a spiritual environment, you have to have faith. You got to rely on your faith in order to move that. Because earlier, as I stated, uh, Humans get in the way of a lot of progress, and so and sometimes we are our, our worst enemy. So, uh, I'd say you, you know, to any nonprofit, you draw off your faith because if you have an idea to help people, remember some people deny the help; they, they'll go against their best interests, and it may be because of fear and other things that have gone on. But you have to have faith, right? And you have to be willing to step forward on that and on that faith. When you talk about additional programs, one of the things that we did was a program called WOW. Yeah. Women Ownership of Wheels, where we were involved with a uh, dealership, and when we talk about employment opportunity, where we gave a, a down payment, we had an automobile dealership that found great vehicles for women that wanted to move forward in their opportunity for job, education, and so on. So that's just one of those. And then that's one of the programs that we're involved in. Then you think about the Solomon School of Success, which uh, actually our Baltimore City Small Business Resource Center, which, which is a government agency, assisted us in the educational piece we had the director uh, present uh, those particular course outlines dealing with and, and helping uh, our entrepreneurs be able to uh, maneuver the, from the beginning of an idea to the manifestation of an idea, plus also carrying it forward. 
That's amazing. I look forward to seeing how y'all rekindle it um, going forward. Another question for you, Mr. Robinson, is um, why do you think resilience hubs are important? I think that anything that helps people in need, um, people who are in distressed situations, I think that's, that's where the church has to be, is involved in, with people who are in need, people who are in distress. The interesting context for the Resiliency Hub, the thing that motivated, I know myself, I think this is true for Mike and Milt, I know it was true for Pastor Bryant, was we started out as a community solar project. We were going to put enough solar, capac solar capacity here at the church site in order to help 90 families. What really um, paved the way, if you will, for the church taking on the solar project. Uh, in the beginning, it was not the resiliency hub, but how can we help 90 families reduce their energy cost? That was the, the thing that really caught us and snared us into doing the resiliency, the resiliency hub as well as the solar project itself. But again, it was to bring relief to a community that is economically distressed. And we thought we could do that by riding the crest the wave of resiliency in energy. Pastor Turner, how does your faith intersect with your social justice work? It is my impetus. Without my faith, I would probably be on the beach, um, stressed out, um, not caring about anybody or anything in the world. Um, but my faith uh, teaches me to be concerned. My faith teaches me not just to be concerned, but to take action. Um, so without my faith, I, I would not have a care in the world. So yeah, because of my faith, I, I I know that God loves this world, God loves his children, and it is my purpose on this life, in this life, in this world, to do all I can to help God's children. Absolutely. And, and I'm sure your faith, you know, kind of helps in sometimes community justice work and Absolutely. social justice. Having a divine sense of justice. Absolutely. Not, um, not a temporal or even merely constitutional, but a divine constitution of objective truths, rights and wrongs um, that no Congress can abridge. It's what has motivated oppressed people um, since the days of Egypt, right? To not take what Pharaoh said, or to not take what your oppressor says to be who you are. Absolutely. Um, but to know you were made by somebody greater than Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. and, and that person gives you your purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and no one should take that away from you. No one has the right to take that away from you. Well, it's powerful. They use faith in times of slavery right. to keep going. And like, I, I can see the faith that y'all have to keep going in times mm -hmm. like this where it can feel like, you know, one step forward, two steps mm -hmm. back with a lot of initiatives that are happening. So And it puts everything you do in perspective. Like, you, you, you know, because of your faith, things work in stages, right? One man soweth, one man waters, but God grants the increase. Um, 
as, as Brother Robinson mentioned, um, Congressman Mitchell, this is the second le second phase of the civil rights movement is economic development. Um, we 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 thank God for the first phase, right? The and the enfranchisement. Well, really, the first stage was emancipation. <laughs> you know, we can't even fight for enfranchisement until we get free, right? Until we recognize the citizens. Then, once we recognize our citizenship, okay, now citizenship denotes some sense of ownership, ownership of the ballot, ownership of you know civic organizations, things of that sort. And now that we have that, and <laughs> unfortunately, some of that's being pulled back in states with these voting laws these terrible uh, obstacles for voting but 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 now the next is you know we got we got we we're we free from the shackles physical shackles uh, we're free from uh, we have the ballot um now we can get the bank you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we, we, i'm gonna use that again uh, we we went we went from um we're going from the auction block the block to um the ballot and now we need to bank. And so that's 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 where we are right now. Absolutely. So what has your experience been as a pastor in Baltimore? And like, have you learned anything new or unexpected? Yes. I found a place I can consider home. Yeah. You know, Baltimore is, it's different from my home in Alabama, Tuskegee, but it's, it feels home. It feels like home. It feels like I can get used to this space um, and the cause for justice is everywhere. Absolutely. Because there's injustice, unfortunately, everywhere. Yeah. And so the cause for justice is everywhere. And I love a good fight. I love, I love a good fight. And I don't, I don't, I, I kind of, I was always the kid that, that, that fought bullies, you know? And so, and white supremacy is the worst bully America's ever seen. So I, I don't run from her at all. Um, so if you had a window into the future, how do you think community resilience work being done now will shape Baltimore neighborhoods and communities, and what does that look like for your congregation? Well, it actually would be, uh, it's still economics in the community. I mean, when, when folks don't have decent places to live, they don't have adequate income to feed themselves, and they don't have, to, and they're in the position all the time to have to always be begging for something. The economic opportunities that in the future is what we're striving for. So that we defeat the SNAP program, we defeat the, the, the so-called quote-unquote welfare. So that's, you know, that's true economic, uh, and, and that's what I, I'm looking forward to. In the future, I want the economic piece so our people are self-sufficient and the only being that they really see is God. And they can see it because they, they see the, as they say, the mansions. God's house has many mansions and that's, that can be in economics. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got a house or, or like the old thing, a chicken in every pot. Definitely. And, and, and right now we don't have, uh, but all the things that you do that come back to the community in which the church is centered on. Then you, the storehouse, you see plenty. Whenever you need something, you need, we're talking about the bank. Yeah. Well, you know, when you need a, you got an idea for a business, and you've been here, fine. You have the 100000 mm -hmm. You don't have to beg for it because you, the community, and you've been engaged with one another. So we can build that. We yeah. want to put jobs and so on where our people have jobs. 
it's no, it's no crime, you know, to want our people to be better, our community to be better. So then you'll see crime reduced to the point, because most of the crime that we see today, when we talk about it, is more is economic based. Yeah. Not just evil, it's economic based. You don't have, and you yeah. see other people at the top of the hill, and see being, and you being oppressed. So you challenge it. Yeah, it's crimes of desperation. By, mm -hmm. Right, so that's what yeah. you say. Okay, so my last question for you is a two-part question. Um, what does community resilience mean to you, and how is Baltimore setting an example for other cities around the country? Well, it's, uh, to me, the resilience piece, again, is, is still part of economic. If folks can see them see opportunity, then they'll challenge to that opportunity. They'll stand up to that opportunity. So that's that, that's really where I am in reference to, and, and the resiliency center is just happens to be a piece that they can see, because empowerment temple is a place they can come to if they need something. So, for instance, we always were here for food, and we still are. The past Pastor Turner has set up uh, a benefit fund, which we as a church give to. So when those come and say, "I can't," mm -hmm. I'm just tore down, I'm broke, I'm, I don't have it, I, there's no other way, then we can evaluate that. And if you need that thousand dollars to help you to keep from the mother and her children being turned out in the street, then we can do that. So all those things come into play, because that's resilience that's building that in, that's being able to come back and forth, be able to, when you have a situation that, that distresses you, causes you despair, then you can come to the church or to the resiliency center and like the resiliency center is a safe haven. Mm -hmm. You can come and get water, uh, electric, you can charge your, your cell phone, any battery in time of need. Mr. Robinson, I know you grew up in a small town in Tennessee. Um, <laughs> so did you witness or experience any instances of environmental racism or injustice growing up? You know, I'm having some difficulty. I know it existed, but we were so insulated as a community. Um, my grandmother was a maid and all of that, raised white folk children and stuff like that. So the only time I ever really experienced the other community was when I went to pick her up from work to bring food home. <laughs> um, and you could just tell the difference between the two. I could tell the difference between the two communities mm -hmm. um, through that through that particular experience. But we had some. We had factories in Clarksville, and most of them were on the periphery of the black community. So I'm sure there was some environmental impact. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a rubber plant, a meat house. You know, some of that. And that was located on the on the edge of, of of the black community. So I'm sure there was some economic injustices that were perpetrated on the black community as a result of its its location outside of the um, black community. But I do want to go back to I think part of our challenges where we can overcome the racism, just understanding the wealth that we have within our community and how we circulate that wealth repeatedly among our community. 
like doing business with ourselves. I think it's something that we have to get a better hold of. Just right here in the church, we have, we have capability here in the church that we've not harnessed for the betterment of not only the individuals who bring those talent skill sets to the table, but it's about how we circulate that dollar more among the people within the church that we can create greater wealth for ourselves as a community. What is one thing you would say to the next generation of people wanting to get involved in community resilience, economic development, or advocacy? Uh, that's a big question, an appropriate one. We have to, I'm the baby boom generation, and I need to be working on how I get that to Generation X. Is that the one? Are you Generation X? I'm, a, I'm actually Gen Z. You Gen Z. I can't say that I am organized in my life in such a way that I can get that passed down to you. Mm -hmm. How do we pass the experiences of us, the baby boomers, down to Generation Z? I think we all try to do it individually, but I think we need to find a way to institutionalize the passing down of the experiences of my generation down to the next and the next, my grandchildren. I'm sure we all do it within our families, but I think there's an institutional need to pass those experiences down. And I think honestly, um, there is some responsibility on our generation too, to look back at what's been done before us and to kind of make an effort to learn from those efforts moving forward. Too. So I think, you know, it is something on both ends as well. I would like to extend our gratitude to Pastor Turner, Brother Mike Simmons, and Anthony Robinson for joining us today on our podcast. I hope you stay tuned for the next episode of The Groundswell, where we are grounded in truth, values, and community. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. You need power. To move. If we never fight, it's a battle we'll always lose.